0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever, to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and
2: grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comporto. Hey guys, how you doing out there? Uh, crazy time? Rough time? Interesting time? Enlightening time? painful time in a multitude of different ways um we're seeing some really crazy and disturbing things we're seeing some really encouraging and, and beautiful things it is uh an extreme emotional roller coaster and we just want to remind you guys all um i was going to say re-extend but i'm not sure if that's a word so remind all of you that um if anybody needs a little extra emotional support during this time please feel free to reach out to us Processing at heritageradionetwork.org is the email address, or Processing Podcast uh, on Instagram. And we'd love to hear from you uh, if you just have something you want to share personally off air, or if you have a listener letter that you'd like us to read on the air, or you'd like to potentially be a guest, or you know a good guest, um, we'd love to hear from you. So please reach out. Uh, On today's show, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Jenny Indig. And Jenny... um, We wanted to air this episode this week specifically because Mother's Day is coming up, and Jenny uh, lost her mom uh, eight years ago to cancer, and it was a very touching interview, as most of our interviews are. Um, But, you know, because Bobby and I are mother and daughter, it was particularly, I don't know, it was complicated to listen to it and uh, just experience that conversation. It was really, it was really... Challenging For me, I'll speak for myself, but I know it was for Bobby, too. And I know it was for Jenny. It was very emotional. Jenny and her mom are very close. Um, and we just thought this was a good episode to air for Mother's Day because, you know, we are accustomed to seeing the kind of hallmark element of the holiday, people getting to celebrate their moms, which is so awesome and great to have a mom to celebrate with. But there's a lot of people who either had... <clears throat> excuse me, uh, strained really, I have allergies, strained relationships with their moms or that have lost their moms. And it can be a really like triggering and difficult day. Um, I can speak for myself on father's day, having lost my dad. I know that that is very hard. And, uh, similarly, I think it can be hard for people who have complicated, um, or absent relationships with their moms. So, um, yeah, that's why we wanted to play this episode today, and to honor, um, to honor Jenny, and to honor her relationship with her mom, and uh, she was just like such a wonderful, wonderful guest. Um, you can check out Jenny's blog, Brooklyn Balbosta, um, uh, Great food blog. She's a great writer. She does a lot of writing for Brooklyn based, and you can also check her out at Brooklyn Balbosta uh, on Instagram. So. He- We hope you are all staying safe and taking care of yourselves and each other. And please enjoy our conversation with Jenny. Okay, thanks. Bye. So we're here with Jenny Indig. Jenny. Hi. Hi. So nice to talk with you. We met, uh, I guess probably like six months ago, maybe a little longer now at an HRN event. And, I remember, like after you re reached out, how nice it was to meet you. You have such a warm smile, and you're such like a lovely person. And it was such a nice meeting then. And it's really mm-hmm. great to have you back and have you on the show.
3: Thank you. It's, thank you. It's, welcome. Thank you. It's such an honor to be with both of you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, in learning a little bit about you, you mentioned that you were from Chicago originally, right? Mm-hmm. So, Bobby and I have both lived in New York our whole lives. Grew up in Long Island, both of us. I've lived in Brooklyn for a long time. So I really don't have a great picture of what it's like to grow up in the Midwest. And I'm actually just curious to get a better idea of you. Like, how does it, how did that inform you in terms of the person you are today? How was it different growing up in Chicago?
3: Well, I mean, the best visual image I can kind of conjure up is, think of any John Hughes movie, Sixteen Candles, Home Alone. I mean, that, Mm. those were all filmed in the town, in the towns Ah. around where I grew up. Still grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, not the city. Right. Um, but I don't know. It was just a really, you know, warm, loving place to to grow up. I went to a, you know, big public high school. My parents were both clinical psychologists who worked yeah. in the town that I grew up in. Oh. Um, they had so a private practice. They had a private practice together, oh. um, which was really nice. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in a small town, you know, that fed into a much larger high school,
4: but right. it was a one. It was a wonderful place to. Right. Well, I'm curious what it was like to have two parents that are psychologists. I know, I know how much it, how
2: it's interesting to have one. I was yes. actually curious about that too.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, people always joke. I mean, the, so I have myself and a younger sister and brother, and um, you know, typically children of therapists always end up some type of psychological disorders, but I think the three of us ended up pretty well adjusted. Um, we're an incredibly close family. Um, and I think that's a hundred percent a testament to how my parents raised us. So,
4: yeah. Were they open people? Oh yeah. There
3: were no secrets in my Uh family. I mean, there's still not, there's no such thing as a secret. You know, you tell one person and within five minutes it's been transmitted to every member of the family.
2: So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious, something that from reading some stuff that you talked to us about before this interview, um, having two psychologist parents in Chicago, in, is that you grew up in like the late 80s, early 90s mm-hmm. kind of, um, did that kind of put you apart? Just did you feel different than maybe some of your friends? Did you feel like maybe, you know, because like being from a home, I can just speak for myself, but you're like a little bit more open. You're, you're kind of thinking a little differently. Was your family very different than other families?
3: I think so. I mean, I think I didn't realize how different it was until I moved away and kind of learned about what other people's experiences were like in their, you know, childhood home. Um, You know, again, it was just, it was, yeah, this, this, we shared everything. I mean, I think we were, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to say like more warm and open, but it was definitely like a... You know, everyone loved coming over to our house. My parents were kind of friendly with mm. all of my friends growing up. Um, you know, they were strict. They were tough. It wasn't like a anything-goes kind of place. They, you know, put a lot of pressure on us to do well in school and to, you know, I was a competitive athlete. And I think they, you know, instilled in us this, like, work-hard kind of um, sentiment. And, um, yeah, but I think... I don't know. I don't know if it was different. But being, you know, it's interesting that I've never moved back. Yeah, Um, I kind of went away to school on the East Coast. And, you know, just aside from my family, there was just never a lot pulling me back. And I felt like the bonds that I had to both my parents and my siblings were strong enough that geography wasn't, you know, reason enough to move back home. Um, And it but that's been a hard I mean, it's been a a hard decision that I've struggled with for a long time, and I think finally have made peace with making home here in New York and in Mm -hmm. Brooklyn. Um, But for a long time, it was, you know, hard for me to imagine, you know, raising a family myself without having my own family around. Of course, absolutely.
2: And, you know, I kind of am asking, like, the questions about your upbringing, and especially with your parents' uh, professions and where you grew up, because... I think that sometimes these things of, like, what your what your parents did and how we grew up, like, you don't necessarily realize it in the moment, right? So you're 13 or you're 15 or you're 18 or you're 7 and your parents are just your parents. They are just the way they are. But then you kind of come to be an adult and you go through certain things and then I think you it sets in then sometimes in reflection in right that like oh i'm going deeper or i'm feeling this on a cer- in a certain way or that a certain circumstance has happened to where now the way i'm coping with it is really interesting right and i think interestingly enough those can be the same things that make you feel maybe other or different, right? Like mm-hmm. growing up, so like, oh, my parents are both psychologists and people yeah. think that's weird because my mom's an accountant and my dad's a fireman, yeah. you know?
4: Well, I have one thought about that. You know, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the book by Daniel Goleman called Emotional Intelligence. He wrote, also wrote Social Intelligence. No, I haven't heard of it. I think that emotional intelligence is an interesting concept. It has nothing to do with our intellect, per se, but it has to do with our discussing of emotions experiencing of emotions and awareness of emotions so I would imagine that with your parents that you had you learned from them emotional intelligence does that make sense yeah I think completely and I think you know
3: you're right I think things that I take for granted like the fact that I'm pretty I'm a very transparent person who shares a lot about myself sometimes too much but um you know I think that when growing up kind of a sign or a testament to if someone was like a, a quote-unquote good person or someone that you would, you know, a good friend was, well, you know, did they ask questions, you know, and I think that that was a big thing that my parents kind of taught me and I didn't really realize um, until much later in life that that's just a, you know, it's a general way of being, of just being curious about other people. That's and a very good point. Absolutely. Yeah. It is such a, mm. asking
2: questions of other people, I noticed that immediately in people, You know, if I meet a new person, a new friend or a new partner that I'm maybe a guy I'm going to date and they don't ask questions. As I get older, I'm, t- I'm so keyed into that because it's someone's curiosity about you and about life is such a good sign. You know, it's such a green flag. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: what was the cooking situation like in your house growing up?
3: So it's interesting. I but um, it wasn't, you know. My mom and dad both, you know, because of their private practice, often had to work evenings. Um, And so dinner very much was an afterthought for, you know, the majority of my childhood. You know, we had a babysitter who took care of us on the nights that my mom worked late. Um, And then she would be home, you know, I think like Wednesday, Thursday night. But it was often like... He ate a lot of McDonald's, I have to say. It was like coming <laughs> yeah. home from like some kind of practice, picking up food, it yeah. wasn't something that she... And I think she felt guilty about it growing up. I think it was always something she wished she did better, was like meal prep. or It just wasn't something that she enjoyed thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. She was an extremely talented woman. She... Um, you know, did everything, but cooking was just not, you know, it wasn't something that brought her a lot of pleasure. And so she just didn't think about it. And until it was too late until we were eating like mac and cheese for dinner. <laughs> um, so I think at a certain point, I, I don't know if it was in high school or even early, like I started kind of cooking and cooking for my sister and brother and oh. like making our lunches. Cause lunch, it like was often just like pulling sleeves of Ritz crackers yeah, and yeah. stuff. What kind and- of stuff would you make? Um, I don't even remember what it started with. I think just following recipes and then like kind of teaching myself, I guess like stir fries or I
0: don't, I mean, I yeah. don't even remember yeah.
3: what it
4: was. Um, so the interest was brewing. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And I think it just, again, it, it became a way for me to, as the oldest sibling kind of pitch in and take care of my younger siblings. And it's kind of like, well, if it was something I cared about, then no one else was doing it. And then, you know, I eventually my dad kind of became more interested. I think he like, fell in love with Giada when she got on the Food Network and started, like, following <laughs> who her Who recipes. amongst us didn't? Um, <laughs> yeah, so he became more of, like, the in-house, you know, chef, but yeah. that was a little bit later. Did your yeah. mom uh, enjoy
2: to eat? Did she enjoy eating? Like, she did.
3: The, yeah. She did. And, you know, it's interesting. Um She wasn't, like, a home cook and wasn't an everyday cook, but she loved, like, she still loved hosting and entertaining. So... She would spend a lot of... They would plan these, like, elaborate dinner parties and, you know, whether it was for... They had a few people that worked for them in their private practice, so they would have them, you know, over every corridor or, like, family celebrations and Jewish holidays. So a lot of thought was put into those kind of events. Um, You know, she would write out these long, elaborate meal cards and um, kind of test different recipes. But it was more the act of, of that...
4: Of giving. Um, of and, giving. Right? Yeah. Of giving and, and creating. You say yep. she was creative. Oh, what my other goodness. kinds of things did she
3: If do? you could DIY <laughs> anything, my mom could do it. I mean, if you had the option to buy it at a store or do it yourself, she would always I mean, whether it was my my sister was a competitive ice skater, so she sewed all of her costumes, Aww. I mean our Halloween costumes. Um, you know, I just I think back to our, our wedding, um, she did. She hand crocheted 150 yamakis. Oh my goodness! Like, oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, um, and oh. she derived like so much. You know, I look back at the pictures, and I'm like, well, they do look a little. You know, everything is a little bit handmade, but um, <laughs> that's amazing. She really and she loved. Every, it was a real labor of love for her. I mean, that that's was so. her way of expressing her love and how much she cared for you know people around her.
2: Right, making it nice.
4: Yep. Actually, we always have a funny little story that we tell. I I was similar to your mom and that um i was never extremely talented but i really wanted to make things and one year i made zara's um graduation costume i think she was in fi- costume <laughs> she was in fifth grade it was
2: a it was a christmas thing because uh, i remember that it was like red and white because it was a christmas play or something like that i think i was in four, like fourth grade
4: so as zara knows i never follow rules and so i didn't have any pattern or anything i feel i can do this myself and when I put the fabric, I thought I found this silky, satiny fabric. I didn't realize it was lining. <laughs> so I made it. It came out. Okay, it was a little off, you know, but it was okay, you know. And Zara got on stage, and the minute she raised her hands, all the seams tore.
2: The oh. sleeves <laughs> fell off. <laughs> right off the dress.
4: So but we love a, that. It
2: really is the thought that counts. And it's I appreciate and it's what you good, said about
4: your mom. Yeah,
2: it really is sweet. And, you know, yeah. the thing... I think, right, about people who love food, love cooking, love celebrating. Like, it really isn't about the thing because that's so subjective. Everyone has a different thing that they like. A Twinkie could be just as amazing as a homemade eclair to anyone, right? So it's not about the actual thing. It's about what it brings to you and what it brings to the people around you. And it says something about people who really enjoy celebrating, you know, not that they're better or worse than anyone else, but they have a... A certain something in them that wants to you know bring other people up you know you just have the the urge to to reach out and make other people happy through Mm -hmm. celebration it's really special it's a wonderful quality she was
3: also like a master of like she just liked to master different projects like if there was something that she didn't know how to do but could learn she also was like an avid consumer of like learning Mm -hmm. um i think she just loved like learning new skills and learning how to do something and that that process of of kind of conquering a new skill.
4: What is your mom's first name? Shelley. Shelley.
2: So, you moved from Chicago then to New York, uh, like 15 years ago.
3: Yeah. Well, I yeah I moved to the like I said I went to school in upstate college in upstate New York. Um, I guess yeah. Well, over 20 years 20 years ago. Okay. Um, and then kind of stayed on the East Coast, lived in Washington D.C. for a, a few years, and then. Ended up meeting my husband kind of a few years after that. Um, Like, I actually opened the Catskills at some resort. Oh, cool. It was a young Jewish professionals retreat. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, we were both dragged to it kind of by respective friends and um, started dating like right after that and did long distance for a little while. And, um, you know, he was he had just moved to New York and started a company here. And, you know, the joke kind of was, well, as long as he's running this company, we'll, you know, stay in New York, and he's still running the company, so we're still here. And you worked
2: originally not in food, because now we're going to get to it later, but now you have this amazing blog, and you write about food, and your your life is very much in food, and your profession is very much in food, but you were originally working in counterterrorism,
4: correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, so my background, um, I studied international relations kind of all throughout college and um you know my first job out of college was working at a think tank in Washington D.C. doing foreign policy and national security related issues and yeah it was just you know it's that story of one thing leads to another I had really great mentors who were kind of at the forefront of counterterrorism and and it was shortly after 9-11 um and yeah it's just I ended up going to grad school to to study it further and then um Coming back to New York again because I wanted to be here, um, finding, you know, doing that type of work here. There's just, there's not as many jobs as there would be in, in Washington, D.C. So I ended up working for the NYPD for a long time wow. um, as an intelligence analyst. That's
2: amazing. And I'm actually on a sidebar curious about that, if we could just kind of shift to that for a second, sure. about how working in that field um, and working in such a high stress environment and being someone who loves also celebrating in food and these kind of, like, very rich, you know, pleasures in life, you know, up, butting up against a very kind of harsh work life. How did that all mesh together?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it actually complemented each other really well. I mean, I think for me, the food and the cooking and coming home and kind of spending the day thinking about what I wanted to do cook for dinner.
4: So while <laughs> was- you were thinking of counterterrorism, you were thinking right, exactly
3: I probably spent too much time thinking about food while I was supposed to be thinking about counterterrorism. Actually I don't know, I mean, I could probably see this now, but our office, um, it was an indisclosed location but very close to Chelsea Market for a long time. It's oh. not there anymore. So I would always like strategically I'd be sitting at my desk kind of like trying to do work but thinking about how I could strategically like take my lunch break and pick up all the ingredients I wanted for dinner that's great Um, that is great it's good balance yeah,
2: yeah I was curious about that and like I have a real desire to talk to like first responders and people who work in that kind of field because it's so interesting to me like my life has been in food so it's very natural for me to think about eating in a way that's very like organic and I don't mean organic vegetables just like it's seamless you know and I don't mean seamless the delivery side um But I think it's interesting about how when people do things that are really high stress, where does food play? And it makes a lot of sense that it could be, like, kind of a diffuser. I feel like I'm speaking in a lot of puns right now, kind of, (laughs) like... It could be, like, diffusing a bomb. Um, No, but that's interesting.
3: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the field of... Again, it wasn't anything that I was never, like, I want to work for the CIA. I want to be a counterterrorism analyst. It was just... It was kind of a career that just Mm. kind of fell in my lap. I mean, if you had... You had to ask. I probably should have ended up becoming a therapist like my parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was just, I almost did it in, like, I don't know if it was defiance, but I wanted to do anything but that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of being an intelligence analyst, and especially, you know, in the field of terrorism, I think a lot of it is just, is first of all, you know, trying to figure out why people make certain decisions mm-hmm. and why people... Mm-hmm individuals you know take a certain path or what the drivers of radicalization are and um you know there's a lot of psychology that goes into that so i think that that's the part of the job that i really enjoyed the most yeah um you know like asking those types of questions and yeah it's fascinating
2: it's actually interesting you mentioned that because i had just listened to an episode of armchair expert Mm -hmm. the other day with chris boss okay i don't know if you're familiar with him but he's uh, it was just talking about negotiating because he was a hostage negotiator for the FBI, and uh, it was really fascinating. You know, it was just something I hadn't thought about, but, like, the psychology behind it is incredible. It's so psychologically based. It's, like, wild. So it's not, yeah, it's not surprising you went into that. Yeah. Um, so then how, where did food
3: come in? So food, I mean, again, so I had kept this blog. I mean, it must have been, I don't know, probably, like, yeah, probably 2007, 2008, Um, I write when blogging kind of even started and um, again it was just a way for me to like I enjoy cooking and entertaining and hosting so much and it was just a way for me to kind of document and honestly share with my family with my mom kind of whatever recipes I was really I was proud of it I knew it wasn't something that everyone enjoyed doing Mm -hmm. especially in a city like New York where you know my apartment was tiny We, you know for a long time didn't have a dishwasher but I you know you still you do it sure and um you know, so just trying to make it, like, accessible and easier for, you know, trying to encourage other people to do it, too. That was kind of the purpose of it. Yeah. Um, so it was
4: mostly about your home cooking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just yeah. about my
3: home cooking. It's and wonderful. it wasn't, you know, just little anecdotes. Um, and I always felt this, you know, was a weird, I felt a little bit weird about having a public profile, like, working in intelligence. Totally. So I didn't do a lot to promote it. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. this was even way before Instagram. So, you know, there was nothing like that. Um but I felt conflicted about it. So I kind of, I did it, but didn't put a lot of time into it. And then, you know, fast forward, I, you know, I had a really interesting career. I'd ended up, you know, leaving the NYP. I did a stint in the private sector. Um, and then kind of ended up back at a, at a think tank here in New York. And, um, you know, about a year ago, just decided to, like, spend more time on it. It was, again, I found myself wanting and, like, thinking more about food than you know, ISIS or, yeah. you know, what. Sure. And I, um, so I just started, and I started writing more. I think I, I use it as um, a way to kind of explore different topics and kind of use it as like a, a way to write some more personal essays. Um, and I found that I really enjoyed it. And I was getting some good feedback from, you know, I think really not only my friends and family read it, but um, yeah. I, I was able to find my voice in my writing in a way that I had never done so in my career.
4: I'm thinking of a line from Mary Oliver when she says, love what you love. And that's what it reminds me that you, you totally. needed to move towards that.
2: Yeah. And love what loves you back.
4: Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> right. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
2: In between this time, you know, you, actually, going back to your writing, you had sent me something that you wrote. And... Uh, Kind of in between this time of like now and when we're talking about your work life and moving to New York, um, something happened in your life that kind of changed everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, d- can you tell us a little bit about what you're kind of, you know, you told us about your family uh, growing up, and can you tell us a little bit about what your family kind of structure is like now and this? this event? Sure.
3: So, you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, have an incredibly close family. You know, it's the type of family where I, you know, each of us talk to each other on the phone, I mean, multiple times a day, you know, Mm -hmm. my brother's on the West Coast, my sister's still in Chicago, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's not a day that goes by that we're not all in touch with each other, Um, and it was shortly about, I guess, a year or so after my husband and I got married, you know, we were living in Brooklyn, Um, I think it was, I was about to turn 30, so I was like 29, Um, and I get a call from my mom. I was actually at, at work, um, working for the NYPD. And, you know, I, I had, like, I had this sixth sense about my mom. I don't know. We're, we. I've always felt like this. we look so much alike. Um, yeah. We have, like, a very similar body type, a very similar personality. And for about, you know, six months she had been complaining about night sweats. Mm. Um, and I just had this, you know, weird, she was someone who never went to the doctor. Like, she just never needed to. She was extremely healthy. She was athletic. Um had never really you know been sick before she had like a stint of breast cancer like years and years ago, but you know it was it was stage one, and she yeah. was fine, and she survived that but um you know we get a call from I get a call from her at work, and she had gone to see her internist and her intern you know fast forward it turns mm-hmm. out um she had stage four kidney cancer oh my goodness yeah, oh, i remember so I, I have this like vivid memory, and this is such a new York story of just you know I was in a meeting. I got the I got the call from my dad. I knew what was happening. You know, I went, I left the meeting, picked it up. You know, they told me what the diagnosis was. And I kind of held it together at work. And I remember walking out of Chelsea Market towards the train back to Brooklyn, and I just, like, started sobbing. Like, that, yeah. you know, the kind that just doesn't stop. And, you know... was like thank god for new york like this is the only city where you can kind of just do that and get on the train and go home space for everything yeah there's space for that too um kind of hidden
2: in plain sight yeah right
3: yeah Yeah. um so it was a shock i mean it was one of those things where um you know i don't think that even like with that kind of diagnosis there's just not a lot of options and even that i mean that was eight years ago nine years ago i guess Mm -hmm. um and so we just, you know, for a while, she, like, my mom made the decision to, like, not tell anyone. She mm-hmm. didn't want her patients to know. So wow. I think for about a month, there was a month period of time where, um, you know, I, I wasn't really allowed to tell anyone. You know, mm-hmm. I told my husband, and obviously, like, maybe my closest friends, but Glencoe, the town that I grew up in, was, like, such a small community that it was really important to my parents, and especially my mom, that that, you know, stayed between us for a while. Um, so, you know, you kind of carried that around for, Makes it a
4: heavier load. Yeah, really yeah, heavy. Absolutely. And,
3: um You know, I think I sent you these pictures during that time. We, My family has a house outside of Whistler. Yeah, really beautiful. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, it's a dream. Yeah. And um, we decided to all go there, like, I don't know, it was like a, three weeks after she was diagnosed. Um, and I hired our photographer from our wedding to take these Aww. pictures. Oh, and that's so special. They're I can't wait to beautiful. see them. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're really they're special. Really special. Um, but there's this picture of us. Uh, kind of at the, at, it was, fr- the lake was frozen, but there's a lake in the backyard. And we all, I don't know, kind of, it was the middle of the afternoon, but we had a bottle of champagne and kind of mm. all toasted to life. And it was really, mm. you know, that moment where we didn't know, mm. really didn't know what lie ahead of us, didn't know how lo- had no idea really how long my mom had left to live, but we're just like enjoying the moment and each other. Um, and I felt so grateful for that. And the photos, too, because it was really, when I think about it, my mom, I mean, she declined so quickly physically that it was the last photos that we had of her where she really looked like mm. herself,
4: too. So, yeah. a, I can't wait to see those photos. Yeah. Will we be able to... Are we going to post them oh, somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you.
2: So, yeah, I'm just kind of struck by that feeling that I think a lot of us have experienced, um, and you kind of really describe it so beautifully and candidly, of... That moment when you just kind of realize that life has changed. It's so weird. And I think we all kind of walk around really being afraid of it and putting it so in the back of our minds. You know, that happens to other people. Or that's somebody else's family. Or this kind of thing can't happen to me. And then when it does, it's, in my experience at least, and I want to know if you agree with this, it's oddly both way more scary and upsetting and not at all as you would have ever thought.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And I think... I just think from the beginning, I I think my mom and dad kind of made the decision that they didn't want, like, our life was so good, and we were yeah. so lucky, um, and just didn't want, wanted us to keep living, yeah. and, uh, you know, like, in the 15 months that my mom lived after her diagnosis, like, we never talked about death, like, mm-hmm. not once. At least, you know, I think she had those private conversations with my dad, but at least with um, myself and my sister and brother like it was just it wasn't something she was willing to face you know she would talk about treatment but she was much more interested in you know what was going on in her lives and I think in being, as, in being she
4: wanted to be she
3: wanted to be yeah. and she wanted to live and um, and I think you know in that time you know my husband and I had been married I think you know I had had like a age in my head where I was like okay when I I don't know if I, when I turn 30 I want to start having kids but you know, we had this conversation and I was like, you know, I, you know, if there's a chance that we could get pregnant and I could have a baby, before, you know, mm-hmm. while my mom's still alive, yeah. like let's do it. And, you know, he was a hundred percent supportive. And I think, um, I don't know if I told my mom right away, but, um, I think when I did, she just like started crying. And I think like seeing how happy that made her, the idea of like, bringing another life into this world, you know, that she could meet. And being able um, to see your child. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, we were really, really lucky. I you know, I think I got pregnant like three months later. Wow. Um, and so but that was hard too because I knew, yes. you know, I just didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know what her treatment plan would look like. I didn't know if I'd be able to see her being pregnant while she was going to be a little so that was scary. All of you. Um but it was a hundred percent like the best decision we ever made, and I, you know, I'm so grateful she was able to meet my daughter, and you know, I can
1: absolutely
3: share part of that story. But it was, you know, also experiencing, you know, being pregnant while she was alive and being able to ask her questions, and yeah. um, you know, and it was always like
4: the mundane, and her being like, able to answer them, yeah, it and must her have meant so much to her. And, yeah,
3: um, you know, everything from like picking out furniture for the nursery or you know it was like the little things that I just you know you take for granted now but I just
4: you know so she you could pass that by her was she able to be with you or it was more of you talking with her on the phone yeah more
3: mostly on the phone I mean I tried to I tried to go back to Chicago I mean I stayed in New York um Again, it was like there was no like there's no timeline.
4: <laughs> I yeah, think that yeah. that's the hardest. You thing. You had no right? handbook for this. E- I mean, any of you? Yeah. I knew
3: the date. You know, the baby was due, mm. and you know, that was it. That was like the only date on the calendar, and nothing yeah. else. You know, up until when someone you know gets hospital, you just don't even know like how a treatment plan is going to look like, or how someone's going to respond to treatment. So um, that was also, I think, just focusing on what we knew was coming, and I think. Early on, you know, I, I think after my husband and I had decided, like, that it would be a really, you know, really amazing to have, you know, my mom there. She never said, like, oh, can oh, I be at there? the, in birth. the Yeah, oh, at the yeah. birth. Um, but at a certain point, you know, we said to her, like, if you're able to travel and want to be there, we'd love to have you there. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a doula. Yeah. I didn't have, a, you know, any kind of, like, birth plan or anything like that. But, um I knew that if she could be there, that I really, you know, that would be so special and meaningful. And and I couldn't imagine another person in the world besides my husband who could, you know, keep me calm in a moment like that. Um, So she did. She was, you know, my daughter was due in November, and um, my mom flew out about a week, you know, before she was due. And I...
4: What was her condition at that time?
3: She was very weak. Mm -hmm. Um, She was in a lot of pain. She had lost a ton of weight. Um yeah it was it was hard i mean it was I remember we like didn't have a a bed we had like a a spare room, but I remember we like went to
4: IKEA the weekend
3: before to make sure like we had a bed for her, so she was comfortable um
4: and she came by herself now she with came your by dad.
3: herself yeah my dad, my dad kept working mm-hmm. um you know, his plan was to come after the baby was born um so she was there, and you know again, I just remember her being in like an extraordinary amount of pain, but she Mm -hmm. did not complain. She was not a complainer at all. So I knew if she was, you know,
4: if she was saying she was in pain, she was really in pain. I would imagine it was also an extraordinary amount of um, poignancy. Yeah. That was going on for everybody.
2: And maybe that kind of a thing, you know, with adrenaline where... You rushes in when you need it the most for her perhaps she used that you the know, emergency kind of, mode right yeah to be able to
4: to be there reach down as deep as you can to yep. get all that strength to be there for you yep yep in that process
2: and she was there and you mentioned she stood for 15 hours she right she did no oh, i don't know if it's good. 15 like i was probably in
3: labor for 15 hours she yeah. was probably there for eight of it and yeah. she stood the whole time oh my goodness. and Incredible. she was there and um yeah, it was amazing. I mean, there was there was some minor complications with my daughter's birth, so she actually, she was with us, but then she had to be taken to the NICU for a few nights, just yeah. like I mean, she had meconium in her, in her, she ingested meconium. Well, so you know um, about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. Yeah,
3: um, I mean, she was fine, and I knew she was going to be fine, but um, as soon as we got home, I just knew that my mom, she was not mm. doing well, and so...
4: She was in overdrive, I imagine. She was in overdrive. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to be witness to that moment of yeah. the birth of your daughter is just so profound.
3: Yeah. I mean, she said it was uh, like one of the you know <sighs> most special days of her entire life.
4: It's I like mean. a circle. It's the circle. Mm-hmm. I remember any time I've seen birth or death, they're very similar. They really yeah. are. Just yeah. backwards.
2: Um, so what was your mom's relationship with being able to... You know, you mentioned that you guys were able to celebrate when you are in Whistler. She's here for the birth of your daughter. That's an extremely intense emotional experience and really beautiful. And coming from being someone who is a celebratory person and pushing through and doing all this stuff. What was her capacity for nourishment? And and you had mentioned a little bit when we spoke before about ways in which you wanted to nourish her because it was so hard for her to eat. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. I mean, at this at this particular moment, like in the story, I mean, she... So, we end up bringing home my daughter from the hospital. I think she was there, like, two or three nights. And that same day, you know, I remember I have a cousin who lives in New York who worked at Mount Sinai. And I just, it was one of those things, like, I just didn't even know what to do. She didn't have an oncologist here, you know, I didn't. So we ended up, like, taking her. She took a cab, I think, because we had to go pick up my daughter. Yeah from the hospital and ended up putting her in a cab up to Mount Sinai to the emergency oh, my room. Goodness. And I mean, if you've been to the emergency room at Mount Sinai, you know it's not like a pleasant place to be. So yeah. I think at this point, I think my brother had come up from Washington DC where he lived and met her there. And she was admitted to the hospital that same day that we took my daughter home. Mm-hmm. So um, just that feeling in itself of like wanting to just celebrate and, you know, be a new mom for the first time but just being so worried about my own mom and And
4: the exhaustion
3: of giving birth i mean at that point i think you're just i mean there's just adrenaline and um but it turned out she had a tumor that was causing her pain and so Mm -hmm. the doctor wouldn't let her fly back to Mm -hmm. chicago and so she had surgery here in new york oh
4: my
3: goodness! um i mean you know my dad eventually flew in but um but then she was here and she couldn't fly home because she had to recover so she ended up staying here for i think about two weeks um, and we had really good friends who graciously, they had, a like, parents had an extra apartment, you know, a couple blocks from us. So we kind of... Helped
4: to make it comfortable. Yeah,
3: made her comfortable here. And I would, um, you know, again, it's like that dream. Like, I always dreamed, you know, again, not living in Chicago. I was, like, having my mom here for the first two weeks after I give birth, you know. Yeah. But um, it really was just about, you know, managing, helping her manage her pain and kind of just distracting her and you know, bringing my daughter to see her and just, you know, trying to spend as much quality time as I could with her.
4: You must have had to dig so deep for your own strength during that time.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think you just do what you have to do. Yes. And again, food, you mentioned food before. I mean, it really, at that point for her, it just, it's not even, I mean, so beyond. Of course. Yeah. Like yeah. that type of nourishment. Right. Um, so
2: she was not really probably able to eat much. No, at
3: all. although I do remember, it's funny, I had forgotten this. So my daughter was born, I think 12 days before Thanksgiving. So my, by this time, my family had all kind of arrived in New York and, um, we ended up having Thanksgiving in my apartment in Brooklyn, and I remember making, I think I made, like, a leg of lamb or something, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was, to be able to pull that whole meal together after <laughs> <Totally. laughs> oh my God my daughter, but, you know, again, that's just something that was something important, you know, I think for me, it made me feel a little bit normal Totally, um, to be able to, you know, get in the kitchen and cook. And, and that's
4: for some people. Yeah. You know, and so that's for, for you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah
2: yeah you had mentioned that she was interested at some point during this process maybe not right then but in lemon cake oh yeah well that was which I thought was really interesting
3: yeah that was you know again for someone who was never really that interested in food kind of at the very end of her life so she ended up living like three more months after mm-hmm. the birth of my daughter um, and we had decided that we would go back to Chicago um like as soon as you know she had her shot so it was like two months in um, to host this baby naming. So mm. my mom, it was like really, it just became this, she became fixated on hosting this big baby naming with all of my family, probably 50 plus people, family and friends in Chicago. Such and,
4: purpose and meaning. And,
3: yeah. yeah, it really gave her something to look forward to, something mm-hmm. to plan for. Um, and so we showed up in Chicago and you know, I was really looking forward to, again, spending time with her. Um, but I kind of knew right away that, things had taken a turn for the worse. I mean not just physically, but mentally. You know, mm-hmm. she started to say things that didn't really make sense that you almost like wanted to laugh at, but then it wasn't yeah. funny at all.
4: But did you do you realize that mom was dying at that time, right?
3: I think it took a couple days, but mm-hmm. I think yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's when you know, we finally and like her on call, you know, it's it's funny and there's this disconnect and I'm sure you've talked to other people about this where um, the oncologist and the doctors providing the treatment, kind of once treatment is over, there's never a real conversation about what comes next, and a lot of that is left to the family. Yeah. And I think for someone like my mom, who forever associated hospice with dying, yes. yeah. and for someone who never really made peace with the fact that she was dying, never ever wanted to talk about it, um, it was never a que- like We never talked about that. So I think it was... I don't know if it was us coming home and kind of saying like, "Look, this is this is getting a little out of hand." Like, who do you
4: think said it first? When you look back,
3: I don't remember. I don't know if yeah. it was he or my, you know, me talking mm-hmm. to my siblings. And mm-hmm. I think for me, it was it was more shocking because, or it was more obvious because I hadn't seen her in a couple months. You know, whereas my mm-hmm. dad, who's with her every day, maybe was it? I don't know if he was in denial mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but I think within a week of us, you know, kind of me being home, you know, we did bring hospice and I think that that was um, really helpful in understanding some of the behaviors and things that were going on. Um, so one of those behaviors was the lemon cake, where mm-hmm. she would just wake up in the morning and get these intense cravings for things and just, like, pull, like pour bowls and bowls of cereal, which she never eats. Wow. <laughs> like, um, and I, you know, of course, I was like, sure, I'll bake a lemon cake if that's what you yeah. feel like. But um, it was kind of this insatiable appetite for sweets. And I learned, you know, after talking to the, like, the nurses from hospice, that that's a common, mm-hmm. you know, thing for someone who's at the very um, end of their life to kind of start craving sweets.
4: There's also something called. Tra- I actually worked in hospice for 12 years, and there's this. Um, trans- it's called transition, and it's a phase right before death where there's an, an, an energy that's. Not explained that they didn't have before, and yeah. it may have come out in the form of yeah. that urge for eating,
3: for eating, and then yeah. also planning this party, yes. this baby naming. Yeah. So all you know, like she'd wake up in the morning and say, "We got to go to Party City," and wow. you know, take me to Costco. Like just wanting to run all these errands. She and- reminds
4: me Elizabeth Kubler Ross wrote a book that was called um, "Live Until We Die," and she was really talking about how if we can do that, if we can actually find a way to find that energy inside. Have the people in our life be part of it too, and not say, "Oh, rest, rest. You should be rested." Right. Yeah. To be able to be who you want to be and live the way you want until the very end.
3: I mean, she she definitely did. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I will say. It's interesting because I,
2: you had mentioned earlier, when you know you, we were chatting before the show, that there's an explanation, a physiological explanation, kind of for this craving of sweets. Correct.
4: I think so. I mean, Bobby, yeah. you yeah. probably know. It, it the way I remember it, it's more of that burst of energy right that can come out in different forms but i think there's a biological right. thing that's that biological thing that's happening in your body i
2: think there's a biological thing yeah. too for sure and i yeah. we don't know what it is but we can <laughs> figure it out yeah. um by consulting the internet but i really do think that it's just so fascinating how those things work in tandem right the brain the heart and i mean the you know the uh, not the literal brain and heart, but the, you know, your mental state and then the, your and your biology versus your spirit. And it's fascinating to me to hear you say that because it is really about your spirit wanting to just capitalize on like these, th- uh, uh, on these last bits of juiciness. Well, that's of what life. I
4: hear about your mom because for many people, you know, the way when a baby's born, they begin to see more and more and more of the world and they open up. And when someone's dying and dying, is not a moment it's a process so generally people are closing in and closing it but your mom didn't exactly do that her spirit seemed that she had such a strong spirit yeah and she fought it shined
3: I mean, she, she had a spirit and she was a fighter i mean yeah. she really really fought mm-hmm. you know till the till the end and um mm-hmm. yeah Yeah, she did. And she wanted to live for those moments, and she did. Mm -hmm. I mean, she lived to be there to see my daughter, and she actually lived for the baby naming, even though, you know, she was really, really sick that day. Um, But she was there, and her spirit for sure was there. Burning, burning spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the
2: most, like, interesting things that I've ever heard about loss is your story and having a newborn child, the, like, most amazing kind of addition to your life. And then the biggest loss, losing your mother. And for those things to be happening is so mind bending, you know, and I'm sure for you too. I'm also wondering if you th- have you, I- I'm sure maybe you've thought of this, maybe you haven't, but uh, what do you feel like that experience of losing your mom may have been like had you not had a newborn at the time? Do you feel like there was any question. part of that that yeah. actually saved
3: you? In, yeah, your gr- in your yeah. grief and in her dying. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, and my sister and brother certainly, you know, didn't, you know, have the same experience. Um, and I think a lot about that, you know, but they had, you know, different parts of it. Like they, you know, were both single at the time. And so, you know, I had the support of my husband. Yes. And sure. they didn't have that kind of relationship in their lives the way so they went home they went home you yeah. know alone and um you know they kind of lost my mom knowing that she would never get to meet you know their these sp- just one day spouse or yeah. family or kids um so I think it was that you know a feeling of just being so grateful um I also just think you know I, I, I think I just always go back to you know arriving back in New York you know after the funeral and you just don't have a choice but to to go on. You know, I had someone to To, wake up and take care of, to get up in the middle of the night and feed. It wasn't, you know, my needs and my grieving. Like, yes, that's important, but someone else needed me more.
4: I I know that from working, doing many groups, and whether it's um, the loss of a parent or the loss of um, a sibling or the loss of a spouse, when there's a child involved to take care of, it, it really makes a difference. Because, as you say, the focus becomes on the other. And do you think that that delayed your grief? Or do you find that it changed your grief by having to focus on your daughter, the new, new baby, rather than your own feelings?
3: I don't know if it delayed it. I mean, I think, you know, grief is one of those things everyone just processes it in a different mm-hmm. timeline, in a different conditions way, too. different conditions. Yeah. I mean, in some ways... You know the fact that I'm, you know, doing this podcast and still talking about it. It's, you know, it's something I'm still processing to this day, and it's never stopped. We we, we grieve
2: our whole lives. Yeah. I also want to mention that today is February 13th, Mm -hmm. and it's been this is the eight year anniversary Mm -hmm. of your mom's death. And I asked you, we decided last minute, kind of, that you'd come on the show today. We've been talking for a while, and I did. I didn't know that, and. I, I don't know, it's just kind of incredible. I mean, first of all, thank you for your generosity and your vulnerability and coming on in general. But even more so for picking this day. I hope that it's a special way, in some way, to memorialize your mom and process this whole experience by being on Processing. But, you know, really, I mean, I, I don't know, I just thought that was a very interesting coincidence. Yeah,
3: no, it is. And, I, you know, anniversaries in my family are, they've always just been a big deal. Weddings and birthdays and... Um, so this day is, you know, it's a day that all of us, you know, my dad and my sister and brother and I, you know, spoke to my uncle and my mom's brother this morning. Um, you know, it's a day that we'll never forget. And I think that, you know, in the past years, I've tried to take the day, you know, even, you know, I've taken work off a couple of years to just really, like, I've, I've just decided, you know, to use this day to do something that I know my mom would love doing. You know, some years I'll go to a museum. She loves museums. Sometimes, you know, I try to do something cultural. I try to do something active mm-hmm. um, just as a way to, again, like kind of celebrate the life, you know, that she led. And um, when I thought about, you know, when I first reached out to you about the podcast, um, you know, you're right. It's it's scary and it's putting myself out there and it's sharing a story. Um, it's very private and emotional, but I, you know, I I just had this sense, like, I knew that she would be really proud, and I knew that this, you know, doing this and yeah. sharing the story would, you know, it would make her happy, so.
1: That's yeah. amazing.
4: And the smile on your face as you talk about her, you can just feel the love and the warmth that continues always. It's always there. What a day to honor mm-hmm. her.
2: I mean, uh, yeah, I, I sit here sitting across from Bobby, and I, I think that, Bob, from what you describe about your mom, I think Bobby and I had have a similar relationship, you know, and, uh, I, while I did lose my dad and that was incredibly painful, like, you know, the thought of losing your mom, it's really, it's really tough. And, uh, I, you had mentioned, you know, looking at other, other people with their moms and having a shopping spree, I think you mentioned, which really, I, I burst into tears when I was reading that. And I mean, a hundred percent like full sob, um, because I have those thoughts and memories too. And I'm proud of you. So like proud of you for having the strength to come on and talk about this, but also just for and I'm happy for you for having that uh that experience of having a kid right away to be able to and a daughter, you know? Yeah. To be able to kind of continue those bonds in this really interesting way. Um and your strength is really inspirational. And you're just a lovely person and I'm so grateful that you came to share your story with us, especially on you know, today of all days. Oh, thank yeah, you. It's, it's thank really you. lovely. You wrote something when you were writing when we were talking earlier, and you're writing some stuff to us about your mom. And I just want to read it back to our listeners because it was another thing that made me sob, and it's so mm-hmm. sweet and really just really gave me a good picture of who your mom is. And actually, when I was reading it, is it advice that I actually really needed to hear at the time. So I can't thank you know you and by, by that way your mom enough for you know saying this and thinking this um but you wrote the one piece of advice from my mom I've always carried with me is that the two most important decisions in life are who you choose to be with and what you choose to do and how you do it Hmm. and that for me paints a really beautiful picture of a really special woman yeah
3: yeah Yeah, she was and you know she had that she chose my dad and They had the most incredible, you know, loving marriage and relationship and career together. Um, You know, and a lot of the reasons, you know, my dad pushed my mom to become a therapist. You know, I don't know what she may have done otherwise. But, you know, I had that as a model growing up, and I feel, you know, so incredibly lucky. It was a lot of pressure, though, to look up to them and to kind of see, you know, hold their relationship up.
4: But it's your foundation. It is. It's the the bricks that you're built with. beautiful
2: so we kind of ask everybody as we're winding down on the show um the same question which is if you could give yourself a piece of advice as you're kind of embarking on this journey it could be really whenever you look at the at the point when you might have needed advice the most Mm -hmm. maybe right after she died or when you learned of her diagnosis whatever that is for you but what would be your advice to your former self to kind of you know knowing what you know now having been through
3: I guess two things. I mean, I think, like, going through the process of, like, my mom being sick and, you know, I wish, the one thing I do wish is that we had, I don't know, like, spent more time, like, getting more information from her. I mean, I think that that was the hardest, Mm -hmm. but it was hard because she never really wanted to sit down and talk about those things. You had to take her lead.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and and we did. And,
3: like, you know, she wasn't someone who, like, left behind letters or thought about, you know, again, what she would say to my sister on her wedding day or anything like that. And that's okay. And I realize now that, you know, I don't have those letters, but I have saved all, you know, the letters that she wrote us growing up.
4: It sounds like she was good in the present.
3: She was very good in the present. She was really
4: a star in the present and that she didn't want to think that much about the future or the past and that for her... Yeah. That's where she lived.
3: Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I guess that in itself is a piece of advice is to, you know, whoever the person, um, you know, we're the ones who are grieving, but, you know, as my mom, really, who was the one who was suffering and to, I guess, take, you know, let, take the lead, you know, from that person and every experience is different and there's no right or wrong. That's right. um, Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, and then I think the last thing is like on the, on the other end, you know, after you've lost someone, you know, I think someone gave this piece of advice to my sister and I, and I think we've passed it on, but but like, don't be afraid to cry. Like tears are okay. Amen.
4: You know, I think that tears are antifreeze for the soul.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a release and it's, you know, it's okay. And to let those tears come and, and to feel that sadness and,
2: I love that. And I also want to yeah, sand that with saying that if someone else is crying, don't be afraid of their tears, Mm
4: -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. make space, make room,
2: even a stranger. Sometimes I'll see somebody crying on the street and just to like make eye contact and be like, are you okay? You know, think
4: about the concept of making room because we do that with our own feelings. We tighten up around them and the more that we open up, we can fully process them. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for other people. If we can make more room, it gives them the chance to process them too without judgment with compassion
1: yeah
2: well this was a really amazing talk and mm. just thank you you know like it, it always it, it it never actually I should say fails to um, amaze me how people are so like generous with their time yes. and so generous in saying hey I have a story and my story is painful and it's painful to sit here and recant the worst thing that happened in my life yeah. you know and um, I think the goal and the benefit of doing such and of being so generous with your time and your emotions is that there are other people out there who are listening to this who are like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm in a family where we're not allowed to talk about emotions yeah. or I didn't think it was okay to cry or, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, this happened to me, you know, and just and that even though it might be a
4: different story, yeah. one little pearl, yeah, one, one little pearl. Right. And for everybody out there, you know, thank you so much for sharing your depth and the story of your mom and your family and the love that you all share. And I know there are so many pearls there. Yeah, It
2: makes it, I, the point I guess I want to make, it really makes a difference, Yeah, you know? So for as hard as it can be to talk about it, it makes it, I think it really makes a difference to other people. You know, we get this like small, unknown sliver of time in this world and so much of it can be painful and fucked up and like unfair, you know? So for each and every one of us to do anything to make that time less brutal or alienating or alone for other people is really kind and compassionate and, you know, it's really kind and compassionate of you to come on and talk about your mom. And she sounded like a really wonderful woman. And I, you paint like such a, you know, in your writing and our conversations before this, you really painted such a beautiful picture of her. and, and through this conversation, you really did too. Um, and I just get the perception of a really like warm, present, exciting, unique, special, vivacious woman. Yes. Yeah. And so you've done her a, an incredible um, honor yes. by, you know, telling anyone with an iPhone who can listen to this <laughs> podcast about how amazing your mom was,
3: you know? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you guys, you know, I, in listening, you know, I listened to your other podcasts and I just, I keep thinking how lucky that the two of you are to be able to do something like this together and, you know, get people to tell their stories and touch so many other people's lives. So thank you for having me. Thanks. Mm-hmm. You know, Bobby always
2: says, she always quotes Viktor Frankl and says survival is a community event. And I think that that's really what the whole goal of this is, yes. right? So each time we speak with somebody else and each time there's another listener, it's really kind of about building a community of people who are like, grief is, grief sucks. It's so hard. And yet we are in an it together. And yeah. And we'll all do it. And mm-hmm. like, let's just, fucking talk about it you know like exactly. let's just talk about it because it happens and it, we don't need to sweep it under the rug so thanks for helping yeah. us do that you're amazing and it was so nice to talk to you and we can't wait
1: for everyone to hear your episode well thank you yeah thank, thank you, you so me. much okay
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.